Acts chapter 14, uh, we enter with Paul and Barnabas into a city called Iconium. It's heading a little bit east, southeast of where we were in Antioch in Pisidia of uh, Paul's first missionary journey. I'll remind you that uh, Paul did not have a, a wonderful exit departure from Antioch and Pisidia. If you remember last week, uh, they didn't stand and wave goodbye to him as he left with tears in their eyes. Oh, we're going to miss you guys. No, they kicked him out of the city. They kicked, they ran him out of town and Paul and Barnabas wiped the dust off their feet and said, hey, we came, we brought the word of God. Many of you rejected it. And uh, although many believed and after they got asked to leave, they didn't fight that. They didn't argue for their rights to stay. They left. And that's where we pick up in chapter 14. Again, you see they go from Antioch, Pisidia. They move southeast to that city called Iconium. And that's all we'll look at, verses 1 through 7 this morning, and then we'll break bread together. Verse 1 begins, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. I love it when it begins with, now it happened. It's like in the course of time, it's, you know, you're out going about your business, and now it happened that, as they entered this city, Where did they go? They went to the synagogue. You could imagine Barnabas going, well, I'm not sure it went so well for us there last time. You know, maybe we should try a a different approach. And Paul says, no, that's where we start. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And of course, in the synagogue, there would be a mixture of the Jews and those that were Greek speaking that also had an affinity for the God of the Jews. And Paul probably preaches a very similar sermon. We don't have it recorded here, but probably very similar to what he preached in the synagogue before. He knew he'd get an invitation to preach, and he knew the culture, and he could speak to them about the grace of God, about being made right with God, not by your works, but by faith. And so the same kind of message of forgiveness of sins. And that's what he probably said there. That's what he probably preached. And I like it says that he so spoke, he spoke in such a way that a great multitude, not just a couple of people, when he gave the invitation, as, as if he did, if he did, it wasn't just one person coming down or, or nobody coming down. It was a great multitude. Both of the Jews and of the Greeks believed. So he spoke powerfully. He spoke uh, directly. It's not because he was particularly relevant because he wore skinny jeans and thick glasses or whatever. And because, you know, we can get so caught up in the, in the externals, can't we? We get so concerned with, the way we look, and I got to look the part. And I got to admit, that's one of the things that gives me a lot of comfort for a number of reasons. Uh, but, you know, Chuck Smith, when he founded Calvary Chapel, when Calvary Chapel really started to take root during the Jesus people days, Chuck Smith was a 45-year-old ball guy ministering to, teaching the word to a bunch of hippie teenagers and, and young adults. So that right there, you see that we're not limited by these external things. We don't have to be and become like the people we're trying to reach, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it touches down deep inside people's hearts and souls. And you just have to sometimes get past the messenger and hear the message. And so Paul doesn't say Paul so dressed or Paul was so relevant, just says that he so spoke. He spoke in such a way that when the people heard it, they knew there was power there. And I like that. So a lot of people, a lot of fruit there. Verse 2 says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. 
That verse catches my attention, and I will admit that this is probably the large portion of what we're going to focus on this morning because that verse just catches my attention. So there were those that believed. Hey, we hear you, Paul, and we just confess that we agree with what you're saying, and, and we believe. But not everybody believed. Not everybody, you know, laid down their lives and, and became followers of Jesus that day. There were those that didn't believe, and what did they do? It wasn't just enough for them not to believe themselves. They had to start a little bit of a stir. They had to start a little uh, defamation campaign against Paul and Barnabas. It's the same word used back up in chapter 13, at verse 50, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women. People love to stir things up, don't they? That's why I have issues sometimes with the media. That's why I have issue most of the time with the media and the news, and I've shared that with you guys before. You know, I'm very careful with how much of that I subject myself to. Even recently, all the rhetoric on the news, and there's so much of it to get ratings, they just pit people against each other, and I despise that. They're just stirring up this and stirring up that and trying to get people stirred up, and it works, doesn't it? Do you find yourself, really, you watch the news and you go, I feel so good now. I'm so at peace. You watch the news and you're angry, you're upset, you're fearful, and like, ah, you know, I don't want to get that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. And I'm not saying you should live under a rock and never know what's going on in the world, but some of you guys consume hours and hours of news and it just makes you irritable and unpleasant and no fun to be around because they stir you up. And you, so you know what that means. You understand that. So these unbelieving Jews, they're upset, envious, whatever it is with what Paul's preaching, and they begin a counter-propaganda type of campaign. And that's really what it is, propaganda. Well, why do you say that, Steve? Look what it says. Not only did they stir people up, they get people going, they get them riled up, but it says they poisoned their minds against the brethren. Now, maybe you have a a King James Bible, and yours might read evil affected. They evil affected them. Because the word for poison is the word that we get, the Greek word for evil or harmful. And so I like that, that the translator said, you know, hmm, Let's see, we got to have a word that means that they're sharing information, right? That's what we get it. They're, these unbelieving Jews are sharing information, true or false. You know, it doesn't, just because you hear it on the news doesn't mean it's true. Just because you hear it on the internet doesn't mean it's true. But it's information. And our lives are filled with information that we have to sort out. And we're getting tired of sorting out information. Information is doubling and tripling and coming to us at a greater rate than ever before. And it can come from all kinds of sources on the internet. And in our lives. So they're, they're giving information to these Gentiles. And the, the, the translators are going, how do we express a word for harmful information to the mind? And literally the word for mind is the word suke, or the word that's translated most often as soul. Speaking of the inner man, the, the will, the emotions, that's where we get the word psychology. So that the unbelieving Jews were feeding information that was harmful to their psyche. Do you get that? you see that? And they chose the word poison. Poison. Because we understand poison. We understand the picture there. Something that's harmful when you take it into your body is poison. Now, if you came to me and you said, Pastor, I feel really sick, I'd say, well, tell me about your diet. What kind of things are you eating? Well, I eat salad. Yeah, oh, that's good, that's good. And, and I, I, I drink smoothies. Yeah, that's good. And occasionally I have some arsenic. And what? Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I just got a hankering for botulism in my life. And I say, well, no wonder you're sick. You know, but see, I don't have that much. I mean, it's just a little bit. 
of botulism, which, by the way, is the most powerful toxin you can ingest. Just a little bit of botulism, and you I just don't feel good. I'm like, well, the answer is so simple. You say, well, why is the Lord punishing me this way? Why isn't God fixing me? Because you're eating botulism. It's not rocket science. You're poisoning your body. No wonder you're sick. But now let's transfer that to the mind, right? Because, see, we understand it physically, but I, I think that we take our, our health of our mind way, way, way too casually. We take our emotional health, we feel like it's just, well, you know, it just ha- these, it's just part of our lives. And we don't take control of, take responsibility for the health of our minds. And so then I see you in counseling because, well, their marriage isn't going so well. And oftentimes I'll ask, what medications are you on? First question I often ask in counseling now, if you're depressed or suicidal, a lot of times the medication can cause those things. But then I'll ask, tell me about what you're taking in. What are you feeding your mind? How much do you read your Bible versus how much do you watch programming on TV? And so one instance in particular where, you know, we were talking about this marriage difficulty and well, tell me about your intake. Are you reading the word? Are you praying? Are you have a devotional life with God? And then as we talked more, I found out this person's favorite TV show was Desperate Housewives. And I said, ay, 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 ay. You know, what, what do you expect? You know, you're putting poison in your mind and you're expecting a different result other than an unhealthy emotional life. And so this, this again is something I want to encourage you because so, you might say, well, you know, that was them, that was then, and, and they're, they're telling them things that poison their minds, and we don't really have unbelieving Jews in Fluvanna, and so really, Pastor, how does this apply to us? It's way worse for us now, because when's the last time you saw a Christian couple, a happy Christian couple, portrayed on a TV show? When's the last time you saw a happy marriage? When's the last time you saw a supposed or an insinuated act of sexual intimacy between a married couple that, and that were happy? Can you think of a time? I mean, it's, it's outnumbers. The media portrays anti-family, traditional family values in an unreasonably overrated amount. In other words, it doesn't reflect reality. I've been reading a a book that's kind of been rocking my world a little bit called The American Paradox, Spiritual Hunger in an Age of Plenty by a guy named Martin E. Marty. And it's not a Christian book. It's just a book filled with data. And he's got some different sections on on a number of different topics. But this is his section on media. He quotes this uh, one person, Marion Wright Edelman, says, all of our children, says a palpably angry Marion Wright Edelman, are growing up today in an ethically polluted nation where instant sex without responsibility, instant gratification without effort, instant solutions without sacrifice, getting rather than giving and hoarding rather than sharing are the two frequent signals of our mass media. We'll watch the Super Bowl, many of us, and we'll wonder why will companies pay $5 million for a 30-second ad? Because the challenge... The battle for control of men's minds goes back to the beginning of human history to control how you think. Propaganda is nothing new. And in our day and age, it comes at us at an alarming rate. And I bring this up and we camp on this for just a few more minutes because so many Christians struggle with emotional things. 
struggle with doubts and fears. And you know, if I asked in this room, how many of you are afraid of flying? Probably a lot of you would raise your hand. But the reality is you're probably afraid of flying because you watch movies that show plane crashes at a far greater rate than they actually happen. I had a friend that was a pilot. And I said, what's the most dangerous part of your job? He said, the van ride from the airport to the hotel. It's way more dangerous. You guys should all be cowering in your houses with holding the car keys going, I'm so afraid to get in the car because it's way more dangerous than flying. But media influences the way you think, the things you fear, the things you, you think about. Nazi Germany. How does that happen? You'll be interested to know that in 1942, eight of the 14 men that developed the final solution for the Holocaust had university PhD doctoral degrees. They're not dumb people, but there's information that comes. And when believed, it leads to harmful results because it poisons the mind. I read this every so often. I'm going to take a minute to read this now, and then we'll work our way back through the passage. A few months before I was born, my dad met a stranger who was new to our small Tennessee town. From the beginning, dad was fascinated with this enchanting newcomer and soon invited him to live with our family. The stranger was quickly accepted and was around to welcome me into the world a few months later. As he grew up, I never questioned his place in our family. Mom taught me to love the word of God. Dad taught me to obey it. But the stranger was our storyteller. He could weave the most fascinating tales. Adventures, mysteries, and comedies were daily conversations. He could hold our whole family spellbound for hours each evening. He was like a friend of the whole family. He took Dad, Bill, and me on our, to our first Major League Baseball game. He was always encouraging us to see the movies, and, and he even made arrangements to introduce us to several movie stars. The stranger was an incessant talker. Dad didn't seem to mind, but sometimes Mom would quietly get up while the rest of us were enthralled with one of his stories of faraway places and go to her room to read her Bible and pray. I wonder now if she ever prayed that the stranger would leave. You see, my dad ruled our household with certain moral convictions, but this stranger never felt an obligation to honor them. Profanity, for example, was not allowed in our house, not from us, from our friends or adults. Our longtime visitor, however, used occasional four-letter words that burned my ears and made dad squirm. To my knowledge, the stranger was never confronted. My dad was a teetotaler who didn't permit alcohol in his home, not even for cooking. But the stranger felt he needed exposure and enlightened us to other ways of life. He offered us beer and other alcoholic beverages often. He made cigarettes look tasty, cigars manly, and pipes distinguished. He talked freely, too much too freely, about sex. His comments were sometimes blatant, sometimes suggestive, and generally embarrassing. I know now that my early concepts of the man-woman relationship were influenced by the stranger. As I look back, I believed it was the grace of God that the stranger did not influence us more. Time after time, he opposed the values of my parents. Yet he was seldom rebuked and never asked to leave more than... Thirty years have passed since the stranger moved in with the family on Morningside Drive, but if I were to walk into my parents' den today, you would still see him sitting over in a corner waiting for someone to listen to him talk and watch him draw his pictures. His name, we always called him TV. So you know where that's going. And, you know, I'm not trying to go Amish on you. You know, I'm not saying, you know, throw it out. But just trying to say, hey, look, there is such a thing as poisoning a mind that was meant to be fixed on Christ. Isn't that what we read in the Bible? Love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And if there are things that compete with that, there's competing messages out there. I want you to take control. I'm asking you to take control instead of being passive about the health of your mind, to take an active role 
in having a healthy mind, setting it on the Lord, because there's a battle going on. Started in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that? God really say that, Eve? And the battle for her thoughts. That's where the whole battle is fought in your life. The whole thing happens. Book after book has been written about the battlefield of the mind. And we just keep taking it in and wondering why we're struggling so much. Pull the plug and you will never be happier. Guaranteed. So we move on. Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their mind against the brethren. Verse 3, I like, therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, and who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So Paul doesn't say, well, they're poisoned in their minds. We'll just leave them be. We'll move on. He says, hey, there's a battle going on here. They're feeding information that's wrong and unhealthy and leads to death and destruction. I want to stay here and feed information that leads to life and grace and points people to Christ. So Paul says, I'm in the battle too. And that's church. That's one of our roles here. That's one of our roles in this community. We're going to continue to open the word of God together and we're going to continue to do battle with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I'm so thankful that that's what you guys expect and that's what you demand. That's why you come. Amen? So Paul stays. I'm not leaving. I'm in the battle. We don't know how long he stays, but verse 4 says, the multitude of the city was divided. Jesus doesn't always unify. He unifies people that unify around him, but he brings division. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. A week before, two weeks before, however long it was, six months before, everything was fine in Iconium. Paul brings the message of God's grace, causes a stir, causes division, and now the city is divided over Christ. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So they get word, they find out, hey, an angry mob is growing, so the, the propaganda campaign has worked. Many people in the city have gotten stirred up and now have come against Paul and Barnabas in a violent way. And they don't stay. Isn't that interesting? We might expect them, well, they should just stick it out and stay there and die for, the, for Christ. But we see that they... You know, they moved on. They became aware of it and they fled. Sometimes we, we give people a, a hard time when they move away from potential suffering. And, and that's okay. If your job isn't going well, you're suffering there. Sometimes God calls you to stay, but sometimes he calls you to leave. We see both of those things in the scripture. And here we see abusiveness rose against them. And rather than saying, we're called to continue to stay here and do battle, they said, hey, it's time for us to move on. And they moved on. And they went, and we'll pick up there in verse 8 next week. Uh, So go ahead and close your Bibles. And uh, lots to talk about, you know, uh, just in terms of as we prepare our hearts for communion. As you come to the table, we just acknowledge that all of our lives are the Lord's. My heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. Do we do that perfectly? No, we don't. You know, do Do I sometimes watch a TV show and I go, I shouldn't be watching this? Yes, I do. But we cut the cable years ago, and I'm so thankful. We we don't have TV. We have a TV. We don't have TV because 
I want to live this life of mine the best I can live it for the Lord. And it's just one of those things that I go, you know, I don't want to live a compromised life. I don't want to live a lukewarm life. Like just, that's just me. You know, you have to make that decision for you. It doesn't mean I never have fun. You know, I have a great time, maybe more so because I end up staying maybe a little more mentally healthy because I don't subject myself to those things. Maybe you, you've got something stirring in your heart. Maybe you've got something stirring in your mind. I've been taking in way more garbage than I have the word. This is not the place of condemnation, but the place of, of invitation. Christ is inviting you once again to health, to spiritual wholeness and life. He's promised us an abundant life. I'll give you life. The, the murderer came to steal and to kill and destroy. The liar, that father of lies, Satan himself, he came to steal your emotional and and spiritual health to destroy your life and your family. But so few people actually walk and experience that abundant life in the church. And the invitation is there again. So I wonder how many of you in here are still thirsting. You're still striving. Just a little bit more money. Just a little bit more success. Just a little bit skinnier. Just a little bit this. Just a little bit that. And you're still hungry and you're on that, you're on that vicious cycle of never actually being satisfied. If we just move here, if I just change to that, if I just get that job. And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're never going to find satisfaction in the world. You're never going to find it. But once you take of me the water of life, living water, then you will find that all of those battles fade away. They all, they all disappear. I am content. I am satisfied. All my deepest longings are fulfilled. I have, my life has meaning. My life has purpose. I serve the, the risen Christ. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. What do I have to prove? What do I need? Nothing. Nothing. And I pray that as God challenges that in my life, that I continue to feel that way.